Hello there, Dr. Anguero. I'm coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 26th of September, 2021. It's a Sunday afternoon, so I thought I would check in with an audio lecture to keep things moving right along. Today, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a synopsis of one type of immune cell. It's called a natural killer cell. This, as it turns out, becomes somewhat significant in the aging process. So I want to give you some uh, background on it and also some specific detail from a couple of papers that were published not that long ago. <clears throat> when we do the video lecture, I may expand on this because natural killer cells are becoming more significant along with memory cells of with the T and B cell populations. So let's do this immediately. I'm going to try to be as synoptic as possible. So one of the papers we're going to talk about is published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry about three years ago. I'll put the citation, of course, in the show notes. And it says about when, you, when you're discussing innate immune cells, one of the ones that is less frequently talked about than the others is the natural killer cell. And that might be because NK cells have a very definitive and precise agency. In fact, it's the responsibility of natural killer cells to maintain a very, very sharp focus. And that focus generates a balance between physiological surveillance of a host cell and then the very abrupt militarization and then functional activity, usually cytotoxic, upon stimulation and a very basic stimulation, which we'll get into, which uses a basic repertoire of cell surface receptors, proteins, of course, NKG2D, DNAM1, NKP30, NKP46, and NKP44, the proteins involved. We're going to talk about some of those. Now, there is also a contradictory induction, and this is under the control of suppressor receptors, and they basically inhibit the killer character of the NK cell. <coughs> These include killer immunoglobulin-like receptors, CD94, NKG2A come to mind. Now, NK cells have to do a pretty potent surveillance. But besides that, they do act as great direct agents to target cell lysis. So they're cytolytic. And therefore, they're involved in the clearance of tumor cells, and also, as it turns out, virally infected or even um, otherwise mutated or transformed cells. So natural killer cells can perform in the inflammatory response. They can be pro-inflammatory, generating cytokines. And in that response, they seem to be important in autoimmune diseases. One of the more important ones that have been noticed, there's an increase in NK cells that produce a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines, is our rheumatoid arthritis. So a very basic activation here. The um, receptor, so-called activating receptor of the natural killer cell, will respond by binding to a ligand on the normal cell. But if that normal cell also has an MHC class 1, and it's not occupied by a peptide, then that MHC class 1 protein on the surface of the normal cell will bind to the inhibitory receptor. 
And so that means activation of the natural killer cell will then be uh, shut down. It will be inhibited. No killing will occur from that interaction. And that's because the inhibitory receptor that binds to the class 1 MHC is uh, occupied, and therefore it doesn't matter whether or not the activating receptor picks up a ligand. Now, in a mutated or cancerous cell or, let's say, virally infected cell, you often see a decrease in MHC class 1 uh, protein presentation on the surface. Now, for those, they will not, that therefore the MHC class 1 will not bind to the inhibitory receptor on the NK cell, the nation NK cell, because it's not there. But you will get the ligand binding to activating receptor and you'll get killing. Okay. So basically, a simplest way to look at is natural killer activity can be suppressed if the major histocompatibility complex type 1 protein are unaltered. So they can be mutated or they could be lower in concentration or they cannot be there at all, like in some tumor cell lineages. So that is a very crude way, but yes, a very potent way to spare normal cells. Okay, that's how NKs basically work. So all NKs express 140 kilodalton isoform of a neural cell adhesion protein, and it's called CD56. And they lack the cell surface CD3. Okay, so you don't find them, you don't find CD3 on natural killer cells. So natural killer cells are grouped into three subsets based upon the expression of CD56. <coughs> CD57, which is a known marker of replicative senescence and terminal differentiation in the CD8 positive T lymphocyte lineage. So you have CD56 bright, CD57 minus NK cells, and they express high interferon gamma levels, and they exert very minimal cytotoxic activity. Then you have the CD56 dim, CD57 positive natural killer cell lineages. They have very low levels of the pro-inflammatory cytokine interferon gamma, but they do indeed provide that high degree of cytotoxicity, working presumably through the MHC class 1 complex because uh, uh, it's not there, right? So CD56 dim, CD57 minus cells are a third type, and they're going to be intermediate and expressing moderate levels of interferon gamma, so they can be somewhat pro-inflammatory cytokine producing, but they also exert a temperate cytotoxic effector function. So upon stimulation, natural killer cells are cytotoxic if they're CD56 dim, CD57 positive, right? That's the most potent form. And they'll kill a target cell through two major uh, mechanisms that require a direct cell-cell contact, which is like a lot of lymphocytes do, right? So one pathway involves target cell lysis mediated by cytotoxic molecules. These include perforin and granzyme, and they're going to be stored in secretory lysosomes, right? The other pathway involves the engagement of a death receptor of a surface and, and, and then reacting with their ligand. So that's the fast ligand and the trail. Now that will result in a caspase-dependent apoptosis to the target cell, you see. So that means that natural killer cells are poised to release cytokines 
growth factors, and they can initiate an inflammatory response like many leukocytes and lymphocytes, but it, they can mediate their response of cell toxicity with both an innate and adaptive immune capability. Uh, you can work on both sides of the uh, aisle in that, in that regard. So they're pretty interesting cells. So a paper published in the Annals of Cell Pathology, also around three years ago, I'll put in the show notes, tells us that these NKs are considered the primary defense lymphocyte against virally infected and virally transformed, otherwise than, of course, oncogenic cells. <clears throat> so they can also, these cells, as you might guess, will deal with any intracellular microbial infection. And of course, as I said already, tumor cells. And the other thing that natural killer cells seem to work on pretty well is the elimination of senescent cells. Hence my discussion for the aging uh, lectures. And in fact, they will resolve an inflammatory response when they get rid of senescent cells because senescent cells tend to leak, causing inflammation. It's one of the characteristics of the elderly cell population. And that would, of course, induce an adaptive immune response. So potential natural killer cells, again, identify CD56 positive and CD3 negative. That's what they all have in common. Located in most organs and tissues, but you find them, uh, if you're looking for them, commonly in the peripheral blood. You see them in the skin. You see them in lymph nodes. You see them in bone marrow. You see them in the liver small intestine, in the lung, and the uterus, so many, many tissues, especially where you might have mucous membranes. So <clears throat> natural killer cells can then be distinct, distinctly organized according to CD56 bright and dim, and I already told you what their characteristics were, right? All right, so the natural killer subset that produces cytokines and chemokines are going to be those, those are going to be the bright, right? They're going to be immunomodulatory. And so sometimes they're just called cytokine-producing natural killer cells. But the CD56 dim, which again, are very dominant in circulation, about 90% of what you find, they're the really potent cytotoxic cells. And they're going to be mediating natural and even antibody-dependent cytotoxicity. Now, this paper I'm talking about here says the absolute number of natural killer cells and their bright versus dim ratio, which is very important here because, because one, you have pro-inflammatory, uh, immune-inducing, and the other is non-pro-inflammatory, but basically cytotoxic and apoptotic. Right? They're totally different mechanisms. <clears throat> so that ratio changes with age. And in fact, you have aging ratio alteration impairs the immune response. In fact, there's been some suggestion in the literature, in the immunology literature, that this may be one of the reasons that elderly are more prone to infections and maybe also the rise of tumors. Now, add another ripple here, genetic and of course epigenetic mechanisms shape metabolic activity including cellular differentiation, which is associated with metabolic activity, as you know. 
And for example, the glycolysis versus beta oxidation of fatty acid switch that you saw in the M1, M2 macrophage lineages. So because you have both genetics and epigenetics functioning there at a mechanistic level, you're going to have a spectrum of pathophysiological response from those two mechanisms. And indeed, in any cell lineage, including natural killer cells. So you know from previous lectures that the genome establishes the template for developmental and metabolic and, and, and with, embedded with that differentiating pattern and an adaptational phenomenon helps to produce the final phenotype. And that adaptational phenomenon can be something at the level of epigenetics, right? So the epigenetic mechanism has become a very important subject for understanding developmental and pathophysiological cell biology, but also healthy cell biology, although that last segment is not that commonly uh, acquired in the scientific literature because we don't know what to look for. That is for healthy epigenetic signatures. Because remember, if we find the epigenetic signatures, it doesn't always mean it lasts. Remember, the, the epigenetic profiling can be written, read, and erased many times on the same DNA and protein. So we don't really know the healthy state of the epigenome, but we have picked up the pathophysiological un, uh, illness-associated states of many epigenetic tailoring processes. And you know that's going to affect ultimately gene expression. And when it affects gene expression in a negative way, negative meaning it makes the person ill, then you can link it to a specific disease. Don't you know? So you see, it's a much larger picture when you think about aging, because aging itself is a chronic disease. So the repertoire of epigenomic signatures you pick up on any number of genetic loci um, may or may not function to procure and adapt the organism to its environment and therefore sustain it in the environment. Or any of those processes at the epigenetic level can start leading to slow turnover of changes in gene expression that ultimately become the epigenetic signature for morbidity, aging itself in terms of senescence of cells, and then death. So trying to tease all that out when you don't have a really good epigenome figured out, and the reason we don't have an epigenome like we do have a genome is because the epigenome can be written, read, and erased and rewritten, okay? So you understand, and, and each of those times that the epigenome is written, it doesn't necessarily occur exactly the same loci. And you have multiple places where you can make epigenetic signatures, methylation level, acetylation level, uh, ubiquitinylation, palmitylylation, various processes that lead to epigenetic profiling. So this means that the biochemistry of epigenetics is very much is, is much more complex than the biochemistry of genetics. It just simply is, because it is not a static system. It is a constantly changing dynamic system that often, um, once a dynamic has occurred, you can no longer see it because it's been erased. But between cell cycle, you see? Yeah, so it's very difficult to pick up. I, I worked on epigenetics in a rat model. I can tell you that that's one of the most difficult things about it looking for methylation patterns. 
because sometimes you think you know what genes are being methylated by say, some stress phenomenon in neuroscience research. Then you go look for it again, you don't see it. Doesn't mean that that stress didn't induce that methylation. That means you may have picked up on it the wrong temporal sequence or maybe found the wrong cells because not all cells go through epigenetic transformation at the same level of potency. It's totally different mechanism and much more complicated than just genetics because you have several covalent modifications and remember it's going to be occurring primarily at the nuclear chromatin level but it's going to be happening at dna histones particularly lysine residues but also arginine residues <clears throat> and you're going to have these multiple covalent modifications the most canonical are methylation and acetylation and then that's going to require having acid acetylmethionine as a substrate Adequate amounts of that I mean methionine metabolism has to be in the correct equipoise for that, along with folic acid metabolism and glycine metabolism, and serine metabolism. Things we talked about before, we just we're doing straight board certified uh, biochemistry, right? Lectures back. You need to have the substrates there. You need the enzymes to carry out the methylations, acetylations, and then the deacetylations, demethylations. Again, there's more covalent modification than those. And then you have to think also about the microRNA. The microRNA will modify messenger RNA expression. That's also an epigenetic event. There's multiple types of non-coding RNA that can do that work, right? Long non-coding, the LNCs, remember the circular RNAs, the frank microRNAs, and all of those can be considered to be associated with some kind of competition with each other, non-coding competition of RNAs to regulate messenger RNA and indeed even transcription of that RNA. So translation and transcription can be affected by microRNA as you probably remember from lectures I've given. So anyways, all these modifications are reversible. And those, rever those, those reversible reactions are part of the epigenetic administration of the total interactome that we call the epigenome. And very subtle things can cause changes in the epigenome, such as nutrition, behavior, and lifestyle. The use of narcotics, the use of pharmaceuticals, the use of ethanol has also all been shown to change epigenomic patterning in various cells and various genes not all of which are canonically understood. So you have basically a spatiotemporal, pathological, pathophysiological meta-state. That's what we're talking about with the epigenetic profiling. Now, and it's fun that we're getting to talk about this, right? Because I told you that this lecture was going to be um, informative for the, uh, for the ending our discussion of aging. And now you can see, hopefully, why I was so uh, keen on getting this done today. Right? Now, what kind of modifications? Let's get a little bit more granular here. Let's get more molecular, I mean. <clears throat> because we talked about friable before and so on. I don't want to get down to granular because it makes you think about, you know, soil particle size, right? I know it does to me because I told you my undergraduate degree was basically in agronomy. Now, be that as it may, among the modifications that we're talking about with epigenetics, you get methylation of the C5 atom, carbon-5 atom, on cytosine residues found in certain canonical, canonical, I'm going to put in quotation marks there, 
CPG islands. That's cytosine, guanosine islands usually associated with the promoter elements at the level of chromatin reorganization or remodeling that's associated with the expression of a gene. So think about Cree elements, things like that, right? The cyclic A and B response element is a piece of DNA that has a certain characteristic as a promoter, a specific promoter for those proteins that are going to be active as transcription factors that have been activated by cyclic AMP. Remember? I mean, various kinds, I'm just giving you that as an example. Now, imagine this, okay? Imagine that some of the DNA is going to have the CPG, the P is just the phosphate uh, ester between the two nucleotides, right? You're going to have the CPG dimer. And the more you have of that dimer in a increased concentration motif, that's why you call a CPG island in a DNA C of sequence, right? The more likely you can pick up a C5, carbon atom 5, <coughs> on cytosine, on that nucleotide, becoming simply just methylated. But that, can all, that same region can also be acetylated ubiquitinylated, and in fact, just same old dreary phosphorylated. This is multiple covalent modifications that can occur there. Now that occurs at the CPG islands. Um, when I say it can occur, it may or may not all the time. You can get it also associated with cohering histones. Those are the basic proteins that wrap up DNA. Remember the 256 nucleosome structure of chromatin DNA in eukaryotic eukaryotic, excuse me, a nuclei. But you also have this then in association with the processing, the, these, uh, these uh, covalent modifications, epigenetic covalent modifications with double-stranded RNA. And even in the generation of small interfering or microRNAs, which are ultimately then considered important for gene silencing. So the enzymes involved are using mechanisms such as methyltransferase, acetyltransferase, phosphorylkinase, phosphatase, D-methylase, D-acetylase, and even the E3 ubiquitin ligase, and then a whole host of RNA enzymes, and do an exome. Even modification of the nucleotides in the RNA, further processing that RNA, right? competitive endogenous RNA involved in controlling gene expression, CE RNA regulating gene expression. That's all of the epigenetic program, which is not scripted. It's modified, added, read, and removed, depending on the environment. And the potency of the selection process involved in keep maintaining the epigenomic sequencing profile, you see? So there's a lot to this that uh, hopefully you're starting to get now. So substrates for the reaction are either chromatin itself, again, it's going to be in the nucleus. Usually we don't talk much about mitochondrial DNA being epigenetically altered, but it is. And in plants, the chloroplast DNA can also be. But in either case, you also have RNA activity and you have double-stranded messenger RNA involved in many of these processes, which is curious, but you do find it there in this site 
of these chromatin modifications at the epigenetic level. We don't, we don't know that much about what, what that's doing, all of that secondary tertiary structure, but we know it's there. Now, again, methylating agent, methionine or SAM, also known as Atomet, is the nuclear methylation agent and obtains a methyl group from folic acid derivatives. We don't need to go into that detail now. We have already done that in the past. Acetyl-CoA is used in the acetylation of chromatin, usually associated with lysine residues and arginine residues and found in histones, which are those cohering basic proteins that wrap up DNA into 256 base pair, more or less chromatin segments, right? Into nucleosomes, remember? All that's to be unwound during chromatin remodeling for gene expression or for genomic replication too, or repair. <clears throat> and all that can be bound together in a process we call chromatin remodeling. I don't like the word remodeling. It sounds like you talk about your kitchen or your bathroom or something. That's the word that's used, and I'll go ahead with it. Um, you could say retailering, right? I like that better, actually, but it's not in the literature, so I'll stick with remodeling. Anyways, all of this will generally alter gene expression, typically downstream from some ligand receptor-mediated response usually at the plasma membrane. Right? So signaling may start there. <clears throat> but also you get it with endogenous signaling, such as with a ubiquitin proteasomal pathway or an ER stress response right? or some modification of glycoprotein biosynthesis because of an induction of an inflammatory uh, signal on the surface of the cell, switching then bioenergetics and also switching the manufacturing of, for example, pro-inflammatory cytokines, which have to move through that delicate pathway, right? So nuclear encoded post-translational modifications, like for example, acetylation of histone carboxy termini will also clearly alter, <laughs> greatly alter just the level of hydrophobicity, hydrophilicity, uh, will alter chromatin structure. And whenever you alter structure, you better believe you're going to alter function. Otherwise, it would not be selected for and maintained in the repertoire of mechanisms controlling nuclear activity, shall we say, right? cellular nuclear activity. Now, the major effect is a pronounced change, ultimately, at the physical chemical accessibility of DNA binding proteins, such things as transcription factors and also topoisomerases and single-stranded binding proteins, that sort of business, right? <clears throat> and all of those DNA binding proteins are going to, of course, unwind the double helix and potentiate the nascent transcription of RNA from that DNA template. All that's going to be altered by these epigenetic profiling changes. So again, you know, every cell is an identical, more or less identical copy of nuclear DNA. But the expression of the genes is controlled by the promoter regions. This is, again, very coarse, rough outline of what goes on. Promoters, of course, as we've been saying, are controlled by many different transacting factors. Those include proteins, lipids, carbohydrates, and then uh, proteolytically processed nucleic acids, right? All of that can bind to DNA and then make covalent modifications associated with that, what we were just talking about. Again, the most common covalent modification in DNA 
is the methylation of the cytosine in CPG island. That's the most common. There are more. The more we look, the more we find. There's even malination, for example, uh, succinylation, right? And these are these are tricarboxylic acid cyclonemediates. These are well, basic, basic, important, potent carboxylic acids in the cell involved in all kinds, not just bioenergetics, not just in respiration, but in all kinds of uh, biochemical pathways in the cell. Okay. So this is as far as we got right now. Hopefully you're getting intrigued about natural killer cells. We, we did that little steering into that larger sea of epigenetics because you're going to, we're going to swing out of that ocean back into a fjord and start talking about again about natural killer cells and what they're up to when you age. It's going to be a very interesting story, but I want you to know that a lot of that story is going to be epigenetically modified. It's going to be an epigenetic story, as well as a pathophysiological uh, immune system story, all then wrapping into the dialectical events which generate the ontology of cellular system. Right? And that's what we're here to do. So <clears throat> that's Dr. Dan Guerra again on the 26th of September and a nice sunny, well, kind of unseasonably warm afternoon in the Pacific Northwest. And what I'm doing to you is give you my uh, goodbye signature, which has that word already in it, bye for now.